This episode is sponsored by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you know you're getting the real deal. Whether you're looking for a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear that make every step feel fly. These days, to know for sure you're getting the real deal, go straight to eBay. When you're searching, just look for that blue check mark. It will say Authenticity Guarantee. That means when you buy it, you can be confident that it's authenticated by real experts. Listen, when you're finally ready to buy that thing you love, you have to make sure you're not going to catch a fake. They're everywhere and it's really tough to tell the difference for yourself. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, that's easy. So again, look for the blue check mark. That way, when it hits your doorstep, not only do you know that it's real, but that feeling you get when you put it on is also for real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Mahari Seward, ID Senior Fashion Features Editor, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. In this week's episode, we're exploring the lesser-known legacy of ballroom, arguably the defining QT POC-driven subculture, ballroom is more than just a sound it's more than just what you're seeing it's a mesh of things that you have to get all at the same time to really understand it if i want to listen to this music while wearing these clothes that's what i'm gonna do being a part of ballroom really made me feel at home and to have a safe haven that i could be myself or be everything This is exactly what's supposed to happen in New York when a bunch of wild kids come together with all of these different backgrounds and all this different taste. And they say, I don't want to have to choose. This wasn't something we just started because it was fun. This is something that we needed for our livelihood, period. Ballroom has the blueprint for everybody's freedom. They just don't know it. Serving, reading, throwing shade. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past few years, you're bound to have heard these terms of phrase and possibly even use them yourself. But while many see these terms as sassy affectations, drip-fed into our vernacular via TV and social media, they have their roots in a subculture that is rarely appropriately credited, yet has transformed how the world looks, feels, and sounds. Ballroom. While ballroom culture has never had greater visibility, its history is still misunderstood. There is a concern that the true innovators of the scene have not been given the acknowledgement, opportunity or compensation they deserve. After all, while on one level, ballroom culture articulates a desire for self-expression, fantasy and freedom, it is the product of a community that has historically been denied these very things. This begs the question... Has what began as a form of cultural resistance for oppressed people finally broken the glass ceiling? Or is ballroom being bought at a bargain price and sold to the other side? Let's start with an abridged history of ballroom. If you want the full story, you could take it all the way back to New York's drag pageants of the 1930s. But ballroom as it's best known today comes slightly later, forecast by one single historic moment. It's 1967, and we're at the Miss All-America Camp beauty pageant. Crystal LeBeja, a black trans queen and leading lady on the pageant scene at the time, 
has just been controversially snubbed by the judges on what she perceived to be racist grounds. That night, it was documented she went off to Harlem and started her own sort of ball system for black and brown folks. That's Ricky Tucker, a writer and academic and the author of And the Category Is, a book charting ballroom's history. He tells us more about how Crystal's response and decision to couple up with fellow black trans queen Asia LaBeja led to the founding of the ballroom scene we know today. So that was sort of the modern genesis of ball culture. It didn't have a face at all. And all of a sudden it had a um, sort of someone who created it in a way, the modern system, the house system. First house of ballroom is crystal is the house of LaBeja crystals, right? The 1970s and 80s saw the rapid expansion of the scene through the founding of houses by queens like Dorian Corey, Pepe LaBeja, Paris Dupré, and Hector Valle, providing an infrastructure of support for queer and trans Black and Latinx folks. They sought solace, community, and self-affirmation at itinerant balls staged across Harlem and downtown Manhattan. But what exactly are these houses? Here's Alex McGlair, a choreographer, dancer, creative director, and legendary member of the House of Miyaki Mugler to explain. In ballroom, it's made up of houses. And houses are your extended family or your alternate family. They take you in, you choose them, and they also choose you. They help you out in different areas. They give you advice. They help you if you need a job. Well, bitch, I know that these people are hiring or, you know, it's literally all around. Like, it's literally an extended family. Ricky Tucker. You know, at a genesis level, like when someone usually finds ballroom, they find their gay family. Um, and the implication of a found family, or what we call a chosen family, because it's a little bit more uh, specific than that, than just, oh, we, we found each other, we're sticking together. It's like, now you've, you are in a house where you have like-mindedness, sometimes um, like cultures, like the extravaganzas typically are Latin, but not always. And so it fills the, that void, that unnatural void, top level of families excommunicating people. And then their churches, so it has that element too. It's very... Um, church-like, very godlike. I'd say closer to some churches I've been to. So tell us about the house that you're a member of, Alex, the house of Miyaki Mugler. The Mugler's, oof. First of all, we're very known for being poised, elegant, and classy. Meaning that, like, say if we're just going for fish and chips, we all are dressed in all black with, with nice hats. You know what I'm saying? The thing is, for the Mugler's, togetherness is a big aspect of our house. The Mugler's are, yeah, they would say the the uppity girls, but we still play double dutch. We still get Vangie. We still, you know, like have fun. But (laughs) As much as houses are about kinship and camaraderie, they're also about competition. At any given ball, the central focus is the string of categories that competitors walk in before a live MC. A panel of judges award winners symbolic trophies and, more recently, cash prizes. They span a wide variety of categories. Realness, for example, demands the full embodiment of a character or personality type, with the results often sociopolitically charged. Take executive realness. As Dorian Corey famously explains in Paris is Burning, It's all about showing the straight world that I can be an executive if I had the opportunity because I can look like one, and that is fulfillment. 
By far the most famous category, or family of categories, is of course Vogue, the athletic dance form that is now synonymous with ballroom. It all started at a ball in 1972, when Paris Dupree bought out a copy of the fashion magazine Vogue, opening up page after page, mimicking models' poses on the beat. This prompted a battle with the other queens present, each trying to outdo each other with the most elegant, model-esque forms. Originally known as performance, then pop, dip and spin, this early style of voguing, now known as Old Way, is remarkable for its statuesque grace and poise, characterised by hard angles. It's what you see in Paris is Burning, as well as in the video for Madonna's Vogue, demonstrated by José and Luis Extravaganza. The more vigorous New Way, replete with rapid, spinning hand performances, balletic stretches and dramatic dips, was first developed in the late 1980s. During this time, there was an increase in professional standard dancers, like Father of Vogue Willie Ninja, joining ballroom spaces. A parallel uptick in the number of butch queens, ballroom jargon for cis-presenting gay men, birthed butch queen Vogue femme. This category emphasises an almost caricaturistic presentation of femininity, otherwise known as soft and cunt. Here's Alex Mugler again, explaining how he came across the dance form in the early noughties. Child, are y'all ready for the story? They say to be the best dancer, you need to, you know, explore all types of dance so you're well-rounded. That's how you'll get the the most jobs or whatever. And um, I was in a performing arts high school and I was doing ballet, jazz, but one of my best friends, um, he was doing street dance, like hip hop and stuff like that. And one day he started playing this music and doing this very extravagant, poised, dramatic, soft, like something that just sucked you in. And I was just like, what the f- Can we curse? <laughs> and I was just like, what the fuck is that? And he's like, girl, I'm voguing. I was like, oh, bitch, you have to teach me that. Like, because for me, when I seen it, it incorporated many things. It had a foundation of the elements, the voguing elements, but also it had a freedom that I was just like, I'm in love with that. I need to be doing this. I need to be in that world. It was in the late 80s that voguing and ballroom culture first found itself in the limelight. And like many subcultural movements, it was club culture that helped this along. At house music havens like Tracks and Paradise Garage, members of the ballroom scene found themselves rubbing shoulders with the broader underground community, including New York's cultural vanguard. DJs like David DePino and Larry Levan pumped up the volume and tempo of their beat to match the hardline movements of voguers. This seeping of the ballroom scene into New York's wider gay club scene and beyond helped concretize ballroom in the mainstream, first with the release of Paris is Burning, and then, of course, with the release of Madonna's Vogue, which catapulted ballroom to global renown. That brought it into the sort of MTV realm, both the sort of academic realm. Judith Butler had something to respond to in Bell Hooks and a lot of other folks in terms of the community, and then um, at a pop level.
By the early 90s, ballroom had begun to recede back to the underground. The hype had died down and the mainstream had moved on. But much more significant than this was the impact of the AIDS crisis. New York's ballroom community endured enormous losses, including some of its veritable pillars and key AIDS activists. But ballroom didn't die. Instead, this moment of survival became a key part of its historic story of resistance. While it retreated and healed, it nevertheless continues to bubble under and shape culture, not just in New York, but increasingly across America and eventually around the world. Here's Alex again. Then it became really underground. I feel when we started to do other things, when people started to become stylists and people started to become hairdressers and, you know, and become friends with people that were celebrities, they were interested in their life and they're like, okay, I'm, I'm part of ballroom. And that sparked an interest because they're like, okay, why are you doing my hair like this? This is how we do our hair at the ball. Why are you wearing these? This is what we wear at balls. This is how we come. This is how we dress. This is how we feel. This is what we give. And I think that sparked a big interest in celebrities and mainstream wanting to have a piece or to that world, the world of ballroom. One of the fields in which ballroom continued to make its mark, though, was club culture. During the 90s, ballroom-oriented, punchy house tracks like Junior Vasquez's If Madonna Calls, Kevin Aviance's Cunty, and, above all, Masters at Work's seminal hard dance, the track that lent contemporary Vogue beats its emblematic heart crash, became New York club music anthems. When you come into ballroom, there's everything you've heard before, but just a little bit more because ballroom has its own specific feel of music. Mike Hugh is the founder of record label Queen Beat and one of the most emblematic producers and DJs of Vogue Beats there is. Back then, it wasn't as developed and maybe still isn't to this day. Um, but just going to balls and hearing those house tracks that were adapted into ballroom. So this would be like Masters at Work, The High Dance, Our Man Van Helden, The Witch Doctor, Junior Vasquez's mix of Work This Pussy, Fly Life by Basement Jacks. Those are all house tracks or ballroom light tracks, country by Kevin Aviance as well. So those were the tracks that you hear at balls in the early days. And... Then you have Bonalore, who was a producer and DJ. He's passed away now, but he is kind of the one that started the modern sound of what ballroom is now. So, Mike, when was it that you first came across the sound? So my introduction to ballroom culture came in 2003. This is October of that year. Um, I'm in high school currently at the time, and I had always heard about this gay party that went on downtown Newark, which is the next town over. Finally got the, you know, chance to go. So you go in there, there's a, you know, a dark, sweaty room. Uh, Hip hop is playing, Baltimore club music, reggae, R&B. But then at the end of the night, to my surprise, the DJ starts to play this different kind of house music that I had never heard. So he starts playing this other type of music and then I see people like doing this crazy, what I thought was a crazy dance and throwing themselves on the ground. And that was just like amazing for me to see that. 
And that was only within maybe a short 10, 15 minute period at the end of the night. And then that was it. And from that first instance, it took me to wanting to find more of the music. At the time that Mike Hugh was discovering the scene, ballroom was still very much confined to peripheral spaces, discrete nooks across Manhattan, as well as a sparse offering of weekly club nights. The clubhouse was in a place called the Karate Club. The Globe was in more of like a warehouse type space. Um, Both spaces very alike. It's just all black and brown, gays, trans, drag queens. I had just recently made it out to the village in New York. So that was like one awakening into gay life and the scene. And then coming to the clubs was even more of that where I got to rub shoulders with these people. And it was just like, it felt like home. I felt so comfortable there. Um, Again, this is why I find myself there every single week until I would finally become a DJ. Ballroom wasn't to remain siloed for long, though. The mid to late noughties saw a gradual renaissance of ballroom culture, with references to voguing in particular percolating into the mainstream. I remember slowly seeing things like you would see, if you remember Chris Brown's Kiss Kiss video, he did like a dip in there, Ashanti, dip it low, her video. So you would slowly see the dance, I think more than anything, start to appear in mainstream and pop culture. Because eventually a lot of these people would, you know, end up being choreographers for celebrities and further fashion stylists, hairdressers, makeup artists. So there's there's so much of ballroom sitting right there along the lines. My name is Venus X and I am from New York City born in Harlem, and um, most people are familiar with my party ghetto gothic. Perhaps more intriguingly, it was also around this time that ballroom started to re-exert its grip on the New York underground. Spilling out beyond the balls once again, it began to make its mark on nightlife at large and set the agenda for the cutting edge of contemporary club culture. If there's one particular party to thank for this clubbing renaissance, it's ghetto gothic. Founded by Venus X and Hood by Air founder Shane Oliver, himself a former ballwalker, the duo didn't set out to create a ballroom party per se, but rather a space that felt like a counterpoint to the existing New York club scene. Club culture was very much a reflection of new money in hip-hop. Uh, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce had a nightclub. Well, Jay-Z had a nightclub and Beyonce would be there all the time with him. And I would work there. I worked there. I was a waitress. So I was really immersed in hip hop culture. I knew that that was not the culture that was going to make me who I am today. The cultures that I was a part of at the time, which was like the downtown party scene, which was like, I feel like it was very much like inspired by, and uh, I don't know how to say this nicely, It was basically like a white college kid's version of diversity. So it was very mad decent. What ultimately are we doing here? We're appropriating from niche uh, parts of the world, regions that are extremely poor, that are extremely like uh, high energy and that don't have any other form of being heard besides this very uh, critical sound that they create that is now being remixed and sampled and, you know, appropriated. And so there were scenes that were like getting at the potential, right? But they weren't 
organized by people of color. They weren't for people of color. People of color were invited, obviously. They were needed to, to fill the spaces. But there is a difference when you have a lineup that's only black and brown. There is a difference when you have a lineup that's majority, if not all queer. There is a difference when you are also young and you are reinterpreting what is happening in the pop culture because you're saying, hey, that's cool, but where does it go next? A queer Latinx woman with roots in the punk and skate scenes, Venus's mission with Ghetto Gothic was, from the outset, to create a space for the natural eclecticism of New York City and the people who call it home. Ballroom itself, however, wasn't a conscious reference at those early events staged at Pokey Bushwick bars. It was very organic because initially, like, Ghetto Gothic was, like, gay, but it wasn't meant to be a space specifically for anyone. So it was, like, naturally certain people arrived and took up space and with that came more music so I'm bringing in like every time and so are my peers you know we have this safe space to like play whatever the fuck we want because we don't know how to DJ we don't know we so nobody is coming and telling us you're doing it wrong you're doing it right I'm just like I want to throw a party So, Venus, how did Ballroom come to play such an important role in Ghetto Gothic? I don't know if we ever planned it, but I think it happened pretty fast because there were all these great remixes, too. Everything that was on the radio was instantly being remixed by a Ballroom producer. So it attracted the Alex Muglers, the Mike Q's. Obviously, Raul and Shane have their, like, personal... Uh, design is is full of ballroom references and and vogue and so it was just like this is a dance that our friends know how to do we don't know how to footwork we don't know how to you know twerk like the bounce dancers we don't know how to do the baile funk dances but we do know how to ballroom for mike q ghetto gothic offered an exciting new context to present ballroom culture and its hallmark sound that was something different. That was that felt like something outside of ballroom that I was doing because it's always had just been balls or like regular Vogue nights on a weekly basis. Um, but then it's almost like just a mesh of everything because you have people from other cultures, the, the goth culture and just club culture in general or just other blacks and gays that aren't in ballroom. And now we're all in this one room. And then some nights, Venus allowed me to throw a category or two at Ghetto Gothic. So now you have ballroom here at the party. And that's why Ghetto Gothic, I think, has been so successful is because it's one of the few places in one of the most vibrant cities where everybody can get along and we don't have to negotiate beforehand. Nobody really knows what they're getting themselves into. And it's a place where you can elevate a MyQ or elevate you know, a ballroom um, dancer give them the space to host, give them the space to take the floor, even have a battle. And the straight men and the, you know, people who have never seen this before don't feel like they're not getting what they paid for or like someone is compromising their values. While Ghetto Gothic may not have been a quote-unquote boring party, its by us, for us, and everyone's welcome values mirrored those of the original ball scene. On any given night, there would be a mix of friends, students, artists, journalists, and musicians, including MIA and ASAP Rocky on the dance floor. 
On a sonic level, the chopped and screwed, deconstructed club sound it pioneered had Vogue beats at its heart. And if you listen to the early productions or sets of regular attendees and performers like Arca, LSDXOXO, Total Freedom and Kalela, you'll see just how crucial the party was in lifting ballroom beyond the ballroom, from one generation to the next. Whether it received the credit it deserved for this, though, is a different story. Here's Venus X again. It matters where it comes from, and it matters that people get credit, and it matters that also, if you create a blueprint like ours, that there's some acknowledgement that this wasn't the way that people were listening to music before. So like even something like TikTok, which I feel like is such a GG ghetto gothic like app because of the way that people relate to music on it and the quality of music and the way, yeah, that it remixed and slowed down and sped up. That's the way we've been playing music at the club for a long time. But then also it's like you have a Beyonce album that starts with Princess Loco and Tommy Wright. That's not ghetto gothic. I'm not crazy. I'm not going to sit here and let people tell me I'm delusional. The issue of appropriation has long marred the ballroom scene, going all the way back to Malcolm McLaren and Madonna. Ballroom's creative influence has certainly helped raise its profile, but done little to financially support those who made it what it is. Artists like Beyonce and FKA Twigs have anchored chunks of their cultural production in ballroom, also working with ballroom ambassadors along the way. But there are main questions around who is really benefiting from the success and how much trickles down to those who need or deserve it the most. The relationship between ballroom and the mainstream has never been more prolific and never more fraught. The culture ultimately is extremely monetizable, but for who? <laughs> it seems to be the same issue. And this is a political issue that extends far beyond this community. It's pretty unfortunate that at the end of the day, it does come down to some really blatant homophobia and anti-Blackness. Uh, and I think that even the fact that no Black queer artist is able to represent themselves at that level yet, even though this is a practice that is very old at this point. And uh, it worries me because if not now, then when, you know? And that's because at the end of the day, DJs, producers, dancers personalities, and all of the people who make these mega pop experiences possible deserve jobs, deserve homes, and deserve access to education and healthcare. And I can guarantee you that no matter how much they get paid for participating in a project like that or being on that stage, in a year, they will have the same problems they always had before this. Because that's the world we live in. And that is not because of one pop star or another pop star. It's not Madonna's fault. It's not Beyonce's fault. It is a problem with the system that consistently says, we don't like black people. We don't like brown people. We don't like indigenous people. We don't like poor people. But we love what you make. And if y'all can figure out how to make it sellable, we'll take it and we'll sell it and we'll act like you never existed. There are examples of a positive exchange between ballroom and pop culture. Fashion, for one, is a space in which numerous ballroom stars have found work as designers, stylists, hair and makeup artists, movement directors, you name it. Mythical stories of high fashion and ballroom colliding abound, including a young Naomi Campbell and Linda Evangelista attending balls in the late 80s, 
taking cues for their walks at impromptu lessons by Willy Ninja at Christopher Street Piers. There's also the story of the genesis of voguing, and style has always been fundamental to ballroom culture. Here's Alex Mugler again. Ballroom has affected a fashion in, in a tremendous way and vice versa. Like, we're teaching the girls how to walk. We're teaching the girls how to pose, you know? But it's a vice versa thing because we were using the influence of the mag, the models in vogue, you know? It's almost an exchange, in a sense, for me. Uh, Alex, are there any people in particular that you think are leading the way in bringing ballroom to fashion? It's a few bad bitches. Um, But uh, definitely Shane, um, who, you know, created HBA and um, was working for Helmet Lang. Definitely Raul from Loire. Definitely Casey from Mugler. Because... Like Raul, like he's literally kind of, he's from ballroom. You know what I'm saying? Like these are people that have actually walked balls and now are creating the looks of today. And what do you think makes for an authentic engagement with the culture? With me, you have to dive deep. Like you have to go to a ball. I have to teach you. You have to know your elements. Like it's not just like, Okay, I'm just going to come and show you how to be fabulous. That's so late to me. When I mean late, like, that's not going to work. You have to really dive in. The history. You need to know about Crystal Labasia. How, you know, it wasn't accepted. And this is what it is. Creating your own. You know what I'm saying? So, for me... It's all about authenticity. So if I'm like going back to mainstream, if I'm doing something mainstream, I have to teach them. And if I can't teach them and if it's giving short timeline or I just want to eight count, I'm saying no. High, low, left to right, ballroom is now everywhere. From RuPaul to Rihanna, Bambi to Beyonce, Ballroom has arguably become the key touchstone for QTPOC culture of our times. As it moves on, it's it's becoming more uh, an open thing for anybody to be a part of. Um, And that's what's happening, I guess, whether we like it or not. I just want people to be knowledgeable about it, know why it exists and who and what and where and how. And then once you have all of that and you've actually visited balls and you can understand the culture and you know, respect it, then it's an open thing for anybody. And I think ballroom is just one of the really important last cultures of its kind um, that should be around for years and years to come. Now more than ever, it seems crucial to recognize those that have shaped the culture, to give the Jose extravaganzas and Kevin Jay-Z prodigies their flowers, rather than the Madonnas and Beyonce's that brought them to mainstream attention. The people that created it, the people that's involved in it. That's that's the main thing. Like, yeah, the sound can be replicated or the dance can be replicated, but when you take away the people that started it, or not necessarily started, but just the people who are involved with it, you lose a shiny gem of it. Like I, I say, a lot of the appropriated ballroom music, it, it's missing flavor. It has no flavor. Yeah, you could put a beat and a crash together and make something, but... It's something about it, just that flavor that you will only get from somebody who really knows. 
From its humble beginnings in Harlem, Ballroom has unfalteringly imparted its vision across the cultural spectrum for over 50 years. With the establishment of thriving scenes from London to Tokyo, Copenhagen to Sao Paulo, it has never been more globally present. And reaching across fashion, music and television, on shows like FX's Pose and HBO's Legendary, it has never held more influence. Actually, I don't see no limit. There was a, a Broadway production called Cats. I seen it probably when I was like six years old. It's literally now going to be a ballroom Broadway show. Sky's the limit, I feel like now, because never even when I thought I started that I would be able to travel and, and make money from just being a part of ballroom and to doing operas and there being Broadway plays and there being television shows and television competitions. Child, the way I'm feeling is probably going to be a ballroom network soon, like a ball, <laughs> actually, or Netflix for just actual ballroom. The DIY, QTPOC-centric ethos of the original balls and parties like Ghetto Gothic that have carried it forward have seeded parties imbued with a similar ethos worldwide. In London, Ghetto Gothic resident and Mugler soundscaper Total Freedom was a regular behind the decks at the now-defunct PDA, bringing ballroom-suffused beats across the Atlantic with them. And as we heard earlier in this very series, in Berlin... LSDXOXO's Floorgasm has brought a ballroom-like sensibility to a city known for its obstinate techno-obsession and to great success. In Sao Paulo, black queer-led parties like Bachku and Tesalzinho fuse Vogue beats with techno and ballet funk, often with Vogas performing live on stage. And in Paris, La Creole serves as a bridge between the city's thrumming ball scene and its club scene, catalyzing the rapid diversification of the latter. While these examples may not resemble ballroom as it was once known, they are nonetheless charged with its distinct sensibility, a testament to Borum's inherently dynamic nature and ultimately its limitless potential. As an artist, as a ballroom artist, as a normal artist, it's your duty to reflect the times and also to tell your story. And as those things are changing, it's evolving into something else. When you express yourself, and I feel like as we're reflecting the times in the craft, in the subculture of ballroom, the girls is eating it up. Identity was written and presented by Mahoro Seawood, with additional writing by Ailey Duffy and Amelia Phillips. Research was by Neelufar Hyderi, Alexia Marmara and Eleanor Gribbin, with art direction by Callum Glenday and Alexander Talarcher. And this exclusive additional track is from Mike Q, remixing Venus X. The producer is Amelia Phillips, with audio production from me, Robin Leeburn, and Identity is a Podmasters production for ID Magazine.
This episode is sponsored by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Maybe you're looking for a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear that make every step feel fly. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can be confident that real experts are making sure every inch, stitch and logo is authentic. So next time, just look for that blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.